Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Alex Budak is a social entrepreneur, faculty member at Berkeley Haas, and the author of Becoming a Changemaker. He teaches, speaks, and writes to help people make a positive impact in their lives, careers, communities, and society. At UC Berkeley, Alex created and teaches the transformative course Becoming a Changemaker and is a lecturer and faculty director for Berkeley Executive Education Programs. As a social entrepreneur, he co-founded StartSomeGood.com. He ran Sweden's most prominent social innovation incubator, Reach for Change, and helped change.org scale globally. He has given talks on leadership, entrepreneurship, and change making around the world from Cambodia to Ukraine to the Arctic Circle and at the White House, UN agencies, and leading corporations. He's a graduate of UCLA and Georgetown University. In this podcast, he shares with us some insights such as why leadership is not about power, but rather about embracing what he calls moments of micro leadership. The three key aspects of being a change maker. And he even offers us a formula on how to multiply those to understand what it takes to be an effective change maker. And he provides some very practical advice on something you can do with your team, with your organization to help people embrace the learning opportunity of taking risk and shift their mindset around risk. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Budek. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It's great to see you. Oh, thrilled to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to open up with the same question I ask all of my guests. Just to get us to know you a little bit personally, could you complete the sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. I have an amazing collection of super colorful socks. I lived in Stockholm, Sweden, where most of the color scheme is black and white, but a lot of the men tend to wear these really bright, colorful socks. It's like the one place to kind of accessorize. And so while living there, I picked up on that theme and I've brought it back. So I'm wearing otter socks right now as we speak. And yeah, I love having fun and colorful socks. How do you choose what sock color to wear on a particular day? The best part about it is that you can do whatever you want. So even if I'm wearing a suit, I could just throw on super bright socks. But I've got a couple of socks, which are my favorite, including these otters, which are from my wife. So those are special ones. Cool. Great. And what's your connection to Stockholm? Why did you spend time there? Super fortuitous. So no connection other than my then girlfriend, now wife, got a job offer there. And we went out and visited in June and fell in love with the city and with each other. And then we moved in January, where I've never been colder in my life as a Californian. But we went just on the whim and not knowing how long we would stay. But we stayed for three years. And am I right in reading that you also got engaged in Stockholm? Yeah, that's right. Yes. How do you decide where to propose? One of my guilty pleasures is I love marriage proposals. And I know this is the only time I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do it right. I'm a photographer. I love pictures. So I figured I would capture the moment in preparation. I wandered all around Stockholm trying to find like the perfect backdrop. And of course, that meant that I had 
to put my camera on timer and then go run and get down on one knee and see like, would the frame be good? So in addition to the one magical moment, which I did capture of her actually saying yes, I also have about 12 outtakes of me on one knee in random places by myself in Stockholm trying to find just that right now. I love it. That's great. That's great. I wish I had done that. I got engaged in New Orleans to my wife 25 years ago or more than 25 years ago that we actually got engaged. I had a whole plan, but at the end of the day, we were just walking the garden district. I just felt the spirit and I just got on my knee and asked her to marry me. And I don't even know what corner it was on or what street it was on. <laughs> so I wish I'd been a little more prepared as you were. Anyway, so we should talk about strategy. That's the topic of this podcast. Could you tell me what is your definition of strategy? For me, it's figuring out what to do and then how to do it. Love it. I think we're going to talk a lot about figuring out what to do because that seems to be at the heart of your book and your course and your work and your entrepreneurial activities. Could you just give us a little bit of background? You talk about this idea of micro leadership. What does that mean? So I teach at a business school, but I think the way we often talk about leadership is kind of broken. We tend to tell leadership stories through the lens of that single heroic moment. We might think about Lequilaza scaling the fence, or we think about Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket for the first time. And to be clear, there's a role for that type of courageous, heroic leadership. But I think when we tell leadership through that lens, through that narrative, many of us look around and say, well, I'm not naturally as charismatic as them, or I'm not naturally an extrovert. Does that mean that I can't be a leader as well? I think we have things backwards. I think that leaders might be scarce, but that leadership is abundant. There might only be one CEO, one chief strategy officer, but each of us can practice acts of leadership from wherever we are. And so in my teaching and in my book, I break leadership down into its smallest, most meaningful unit, which is simply a leadership moment. And if you think about it, these leadership moments appear before us dozens of times per day. It might be a moment where you notice that one of your colleagues has been quiet throughout an entire meeting and you say, hey, you know, no pressure, but we haven't heard from you. We'd, we'd love to hear your perspective if you're comfortable sharing. Or maybe it's having the courage to say no when everyone else says yes. Or maybe it's being willing to stay late to help a new colleague clean up after their first event. These are all tiny little leadership moments. And so my challenge to you with the frame of micro leadership is when you seize those leadership moments, instead of waiting for formal authority or formal permission or formal title to be a leader, instead, give it to yourself and seize those moments. And that's what micro leadership is all about. So when did you bring into focus this view of leadership? Because I totally see it and it allows all of us not only to be leaders, but to see moments of opportunity to lead multiple times throughout the day. Was it when you created Start Some Good? Can you tell us a little about that? And was that related to this idea of micro leadership? It's a huge part of it. So as we go from that sort of singular leader to the wonderful many, that's been a big narrative arc of my career. So I started off to co-found the social venture StartSomeGood.com, which helps change makers all around the world get started. Sometimes people use our site to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, but sometimes they just come and raise $250. You know, I think about a group of teenagers in Oakland, they wanted to start an urban garden. All they needed was a couple hundred dollars to get money for seeds and soil and beds. And that's all that was stopping them from taking action. I think it goes along with that idea, which is that we tend to put the single leader, the single entrepreneur, the single innovator up on a pedestal. But I've come to see that my view of change is that it takes all of us leading from where we are, that the entrepreneur entrepreneur, the founder, the CEO, often gets a lot of the credit. But speaking as an entrepreneur myself, we need the COO, we need the CMO, we need the CFO, we need the CSO to be around us. And then rather than saying everyone has to have this one modal view of leadership, of change, no, it's something that each of us can do. So we've got to get clear on what our strengths are and how we can contribute to it. And why is that insight important to you? Why have you dedicated so much of your time and energy and passion to propagating this idea of anyone being able to be a change maker? So I teach a class called Becoming a Change Maker at East Berkeley. 
I began by teaching undergraduates and now teach MBAs and executives as well, but start off teaching undergraduates, 20, 21 year old students. And I saw in them that they had this raw energy and enthusiasm for changing the world. They needed a little bit of structure and a little bit of guidance. But as I would teach them these leadership concepts, I saw that many of them were saying, okay, cool. I can't wait to do this in 15 years once I have the title or once I have the formal authority. And I saw what a missed opportunity. These kids are so talented. They have so much to bring into the world. Let's help them find their leadership voice. Let's help them see themselves as a leader because how different their career will look if day one, age 22, entering as an entry-level program manager, that they realize that they can actually lead change from where they are. Now, to be clear, there's power imbalances and they won't have the formal authority, but how vastly different it is. I see how incredibly talented my students are, but also just people I have the chance to run into on a daily basis. So much talent, but the opportunities to lead change aren't equally distributed. And so, so much of my career has been helping people step in to their leadership potential, find their voice, and give themselves that permission to lead. I love that. If I direct that into a particular scenario, which is you're working at a company, maybe you're more senior and you have these 21-year-olds that have just joined and you want them to unleash their passion and power for change. It's not enough just to say, you can make a difference, go find something. Could you just break down what are the elements of being a change maker and how do you inspire and educate people to step into that? Yes, I break the book down into three parts. We've got changemaker mindset, changemaker leadership, and changemaker action. We begin with changemaker mindset. And this is what some of my original research has found that the most effective changemakers have in common, irrespective of roles or sectors. It's a way of seeing the world and your role in being able to shape it. And here we think about things like empathy and curiosity and resilience and a sense of agency. From there, we go into changemaker leadership. So challenging some of these conventional norms around leadership. And we look at, well, how do you do your best work through and with others? How do you come up with a vision for change and inspire others to be part of that with you? And how do you influence even without the formal authority? And then the third part is changemaker action. Now, for everyone's benefit, I am not a math professor. And so I only teach one single math equation in my whole class, which is what I call the changemaker impact equation. Simply put, I say it's the sum of your mindset and your leadership multiplied by your action. The lesson here is that even if you have an amazing mindset and you've got really strong leadership skills, if you don't take any action with it, nothing happens. Any number multiplied by zero, even a big number is still zero. You can't have impact as a change maker unless you take action. But action can feel really scary, especially when we're thinking about big substantive change efforts, whether that's a digital transformation strategy or a climate strategy, can feel really overwhelming. So, so much of the work that I do is to help people take those big complex change efforts and make them feel actionable and something they can actually do. Take that first challenging but crucial step of action. Because then from there, then we start building momentum. I think that one of the probably many things that hold us back from taking action is certainly the fear of failure. I think an entrepreneur is sort of a badge of honor to fail, right? But if you're inside a company, that can have detrimental effects. So how do you in class approach getting people to relate to that failure effectively and take action? You're so right. It's one thing to intellectually say, yeah, failure is important. I will probably fail if I do anything meaningful. It's another thing to actually experience it. And so after spending a couple hours in our class where we do some case studies on failure, we look at some frameworks, we look at some data, then towards the end of class, I put up a slide which just has two words. It just says, go fail. And my students sort of look at me like, what's going on here? And I go, yeah, I'm serious. Put up the next slide. And it says, okay, you have 15 minutes and you have to go leave the classroom. You can't come back 
until you've asked for something and been rejected. And at this point, students start laughing nervously. They start turning red. They tell me that they actually start sweating and their heart is beating. Because remember, these are people, perhaps like many of your listeners, that are used to doing the right thing, used to high achievers, have figured out the right steps and they follow them. And here I am. I've gotten the moniker of the failure professor because of this, hopefully because of this, not because of my other failures. And now I'm telling them, actually, high achievers go fail. But then when they come back 15 minutes later, the energy is just off the charts. So much so that I once had a professor next door come over and ask to keep the noise down because students are so lit up from this experience. And here's what we find. One of two things happens. So about one third of students ask for something. They're sure they'll get a no and they actually get a yes. I think about one woman who went to the cafe downstairs and she said, hi, could I have a free orange juice? And the barista said, yeah, okay. And she went, "Uh uh-oh, I'm supposed to fail. Could I have two? And he goes, yeah, you could have two. Uh, uh, could I have three? And thankfully he cut her off after two. So the lesson there is that so often our first failure is that we never ask for what we want in the first place. We're so sure we'll get rejected that we practically reject ourselves. And then the second lesson is for the other about two thirds of students. They do get rejected. I think about the guy who asked a construction worker if he could drive the bulldozer. And thankfully the construction worker said no. That's good. The institution's held. But in that case, they come back and they realize, okay, well, failure wasn't fatal. No one laughed at me. And they come back with a bit more courage. They're really proud of themselves for putting themselves out there. And they realize, okay, well, if I could ask for this thing, which is kind of silly, imagine what I could do when I actually ask for something that I want, whether that's an internship, a raise, a new opportunity. It opens up doors once we change our perspective of what it means to fail and recognize that we can fail and fail forward. So what would you do if I take you out of the classroom and I put you inside a corporation and you are an executive there and you know, you're know you asking people to be willing to take risks and fail and you're telling them, we're going to learn. You know, We hear this all the time. It's not a failure if you learn, right? I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here because we haven't talked about this ahead of time, but any suggestions of something like that that an executive, a leader can do to encourage the willingness to fail? Absolutely. I have a deliberate practice that I used as an executive and that I coach executives on using. I'm a big believer in the work of Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School. And so the question is not just can you tell your team to fail, but how can you make it psychologically safe for them to fail? So here's one of the things that I like to do. During your weekly meeting, you ask two questions. What was your win of the week? So what's the thing you did that helped move us closer to our collective goals? And the second one is how did you fail and what did you learn from it? It normalizes failure. When each and every one of us are expecting to get asked how we failed each week, well, then it gives us that permission to fail. It sets that culture within the group that says, not only is failure okay, we expect it, we embrace it. And by doing it collectively, any one single failure is no longer an outlier. It's something that we collectively expect from each of us. And then as a leader, you can also begin observing and seeing, well, is there someone who really isn't coming forward with either a good failure each week, which is maybe assigned to you as their manager to say, hey, maybe you need to push them a little bit more, make it safe for them to fail? Or can you make sure that it's also a learning from it? So we're not just celebrating like, oh yeah, I should have sent that email and I never sent it. That in of itself is not a good failure. But if you can pull out a lesson from it, or especially a lesson of failure by doing, having a bias towards action, you tried something, it didn't work, here's what you learned. Well, not only do you as an individual benefit from it, but there's also incredible collective knowledge from that failure. Together we learn more and we all benefit from an individual's failure. Yes, yes. Very tangible, actionable practice. And I can see how that can really shift the culture of the team and there through the organization. What in your experience do people get wrong when they think of leadership or power or making a difference or being a change maker? What's the big misconception? So often, I think as change makers, we need to hold multiple polarities at the same time. And I find that oftentimes leaders, change makers tend to over-index on one or the other. One of the chapters in my book is called Confidence Without Attitude. In it, I make the case that leaders, that change makers need to be two things which seem perhaps 
contradictory at the same time. You've got to be confident. You've got to be confident to put yourself out there to say, hey, I've got an idea, whether it's big or small, you know, I've got this idea. I'm going to lead this, follow me, be part of this. But you've also got to have humility. You've got to have the humility to admit your own mistakes, to admit failability, to bring others, to make them feel like they're part of this movement as well. And so one of the mistakes that leaders make is they go one of either ends. They're either super confident and they say, well, any humility that I show, that's weakness. I do not be vulnerable and no one will trust me if I do that. On the other side, that'd be too humble where you're always asking others what they think and you never actually stand up and believe in your ideas. So the mistake many make is this muddled middle ground where you become a little bit confident and a little bit humble, but really neither of each. And so the challenge I pose to change makers is both and. At the same time, be confident and be humble. I tell this story in the book of Gwen Yu Wong. She's the founder of an organization called Tribeless. She had the courage, she had the confidence to stand up and say, hey, I'm going to start this organization. They worked with executives and teams to teach them emotional intelligence. By all outward measures, she was thriving. Her company was thriving. She was on the cover of magazines. Revenue growth was skyrocketing. It seemed like everything was great. But internally, she felt this conflict. She said, I don't think that I'm the leader that my team needs right now. She's the visionary, the product person, but she recognized what the team needed was more of an operations strategy finance person. It wasn't easy, but after about six months, she decided that she was going to step back from her role as CEO to take on a product officer role and her co-founder would step up as CEO. What I love about her story is that so many leaders that I work with, once you attain that position of power, you just hold on to it no matter what. But Gwen had the humility to say, no, at this point, I'm no longer serving my team in the best possible way. Let me have that humility to step back. But in doing so, she had a lot of confidence. She had the confidence to start the organization in the first place and also the confidence in herself to say, yeah, I'm going to step back as CEO, but I'm still going to have an impact as chief product officer because this is where I can have my highest contribution. Fascinating. This is coming on the heels of two other recent podcast interviews I conducted, which both happened to be with women leaders. And both of them said something like, there are times when you need to have low confidence, like I don't know the answer. So I need to listen to people, hear their ideas and learn. And then followed by moments of confidence. This is where we're going. And maybe you're not a hundred percent, but you have to move people to action by saying this is the direction. So in different states or different periods of the problem solving process, you have different levels of confidence. Interesting. What comes up often when I talk to internal innovators, entrepreneurs is what kind of change do I want to make? Because if you pick something that you just happen to for today be excited about, you might not have the commitment to see it through, to put in the time and hours and curiosity and energy and passion over a sufficiently long period of time to actually start making a change. So it's got to be something innate. But how do you know when that is the kind of change that you are ready to commit to? Well, I think it's a bit like being an entrepreneur. In the case of me with Start Some Good, I had many ideas throughout my life, but there's this idea that just kept sticking with me. It just felt like I would think about it in the shower in the morning. I think about before I went to bed, I go just constantly with me. And so I think just like being an entrepreneur, as an intrapreneur, you've got to have an idea that you fall in love with. We tend to think that intrapreneurship is easier than starting a company, but in many cases, it's actually harder because you've got to find ways to convince so many stakeholders to come on board. So sometimes the idea will come from data-driven insights, which is great. Sometimes it will come from your own personal lived experience. Both are valid. Both are important. But I think fundamentally, you've got to be obsessed with the idea. But then from there, it's not enough to just have it be a good idea on its own. You've got to make sure that it's rooted in the company's culture, value, and strategy. 
In the book, I tell the story of Sam McCracken. So Sam McCracken was a general manager at Nike. He's a member of the Sioux Indigenous Tribe of America. And growing up, he realized that while he and his friends, they didn't have access to the same level of sports and recreations, goods and facilities that many other kids did. He also recognized that at Nike, there was a huge opportunity sitting on this target market and this incredible company and powerful organization. So he made the case to leaders at Nike to start something called the Native 7, the N7 shoe line. The idea is that it would be Indigenous Native American American designs, and the proceeds of which would go into the N7 fund, which would support kids like he was, communities like his, to provide sports and recreation facilities in Canada and the U.S. Now, it's a great idea, but in doing so, he actually brought together both his own personal experience as an individual and his personal experience as worker, Sam. So when he made the case, Nike has 11 what they call maxims, sort of ways of going about their work. And as he made the pitch to senior leadership, he grounded his argument in all 11 of these maxims. It wasn't just Sam's idea on his own. It was Sam seeing this opportunity based on his own personal lived experience, but also based on fundamentally understanding Nike, its opportunities, its strengths, and making that pitch rooted in its culture and its values. Oh my gosh, I've got goosebumps. I think that's inspiring. And I think it also points to an important thing about being a change maker inside an organization is viewing the organization as a customer, understanding what the organization needs, and finding that passion that is both your passion and that is beneficial to the organization. Amazing. So I have so many more questions, but I know we're reaching the top of our time time with you. You've got great tools. You've got your book that you just published. You've got a change maker canvas. You've got great content on YouTube. I'm assuming that everyone's listening to this also has goosebumps and they're thinking, I want to do something like that wherever I am. What's their next step? What can they do to take the next step of the journey with you? Well, certainly hope that the book I just wrote, Becoming a Changemaker, could be a powerful resource and tool for you. So you can check it out at changemakerbook.com. Encourage you to take what I call the Changemaker Index. That's a chance for you to check in on your own Changemaker strengths. The things we talked about, is it mindset? Is it leadership? Is it action? I'm a big believer in strengths-based leadership. So what is your greatest strength? You can take that at changemakerbook.com slash index. And my greatest joy and privilege is connecting with, supporting, encouraging changemakers like you. So please feel totally free to reach out to me. LinkedIn is my main social media network. So please feel free to reach out to me there and would love to hear what stuck out to you from the interview. What's your opportunity as a changemaker and how might I support you? Awesome. Alex, thanks for the work that you do in the world for so many years and for synthesizing it for us and making it accessible for us and taking some time out of your day here to share it with us. Thank you, Alex. What a fun conversation. I'm really grateful you had me. Thanks. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.